Good morning. Welcome here this morning, and it's a joy again to gather together to worship our Lord and our risen Savior, and a privilege to once again bring God's Word for you, and I trust that the Lord will speak to us through His Word this morning, and that we might be edified in that. And thinking of the last song that Kevin and Matthew sang here, It Is Well With My Soul. Through trials, though, through the buffeting of Satan, the, the writer writes, it is well with my soul. Is that something that we can truly say as well? And I was reminded again in preparation for the sermon in First Peter, and you can go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn to First Peter chapter 3 already. But I was reminded during our time together in this text and in this book and the trials, the suffering, the persecutions that we constantly see throughout and, and how we are to respond to that. And Peter tells us in our study of First Peter, he is showing us, we are seeing that God is instructing Christians to conduct ourselves in all relationships and all areas of life during these hardships that are sure to come. But we're to conduct ourselves in a manner that is becoming of His children. He's giving us guidance. He's exhorting us. He's, he's letting us know that life will not always be easy. There will be trials. There will be hardships, especially as His children, for being faithful to His Word. You will be persecuted. You will be hated, for they hated me first, Jesus Christ tells us. And so we've seen that theme, and we've emphasized that theme over and over again as we've looked through Peter's epistle. And as we've considered those things, We've, we've seen that Peter calls us elect exiles. He calls his readers elect exiles in verse 1 of chapter 1, meaning that they are foreigners in a land. They're sojourners. They're strangers in this land. And they are made so because of their faith. Their faith has made them a citizen of a new kingdom. Citizens under a new king. And because of that, Peter's readers, as we are, as believers, we are foreigners in this land. And often we feel that. Through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our inheritance has been transferred. It has been transferred from an, from a earthly temporal, temporal treasure. Something that we can store up here on earth for our use and even for our enjoyment. But it has been transferred ultimately to a beautiful heavenly treasure. And in fact, let's turn to First Peter chapter 1. Verse 3, starting in verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy... Note here, according to the great mercy of the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not a dead hope. Not a hopeless hope. Not a hope based on the works of man. Not a hope based on our abilities, our goodness. But by the grace of God the Father, blessed be God the Father, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, Christ died. And He was raised again to life. And in that resurrection to life, we have a living hope. Our hope now is placed on in Jesus Christ. It does not die. When we too have died with Christ, we too are then raised into this living hope on the basis of Christ's resurrection. It cannot die. And this is our hope. And two, he says in verse four, we are to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you. This inheritance that we now have is kept in heaven for you. By your merit? By my merit? Under my strength? By your strength? By your deeds? By your faithfulness? By your Ability? No. Listen to this. Verse 5. Who by God's power, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is our treasure. This is our eternal life. Our living hope is this inheritance that we have. It's undefiled, imperishable, unfading, and it's kept by the power of God and guarded by Him for our inheritance. That is the inheritance that we now have that move us from an earthly temporal state into an eternal focus. It is this inheritance that helps Peter's readers during their sufferings, during their times of persecution, to look beyond what the world is saying about them and how the world is treating them and to focus there. And then Peter says later in verse 13 of chapter 1, Therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because of this salvation, therefore, Here's our response. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do we set our hope on that grace? Do we set our hope on something earthly, something that is fading, something that is not imperishable, something that is not undefiled? We are to set our hope on these things for that very reason. Peter is writing to some Christians during this time and in his epistle, who have been scattered and they are undergoing persecution and suffering for their faith. In some cases, as we've noted in previous sermons, we've seen quite severely so. The persecutions that they are facing have been quite severe. So Peter's intent is to encourage them. He is working to encourage them on how to live in the midst of a hostile society, how to live in the midst of a hostile culture, one that is opposed to their faith. How then do they live? How to conduct themselves in a world that is opposed to their faith? MacArthur notes in his commentary, generally Peter tells them 
to sort of elevate themselves and turn toward their living hope in Christ. In other words, get out of this world mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and focus on what is eternal, what is heavenly. Keep your mind on the eternal Christ. Keep your mind on His glorious future for you, on His glorious resources. Don't get caught up in the fuss down here. Get your focus upward. End quote. And as with Peter's readers, this too is our focus. This too is our aim. To look beyond the trials of here and now and to set our sights on our glorious inheritance that we find in the grace of Jesus Christ. Look beyond the pain of this world. Look beyond the suffering of this world. Look beyond and place your focus. Keep your eyes. Put your aim on this inheritance that God has prepared for us through Jesus Christ and He is guarding for us until that day. We sung earlier this morning as well, Christ our sure and steady anchor. It is unmoving. That is our hope and that is the focus that Peter is drawing his readers to. And likewise, in his word, God is calling us to set our focus on. This inheritance. And then, as Christians, our conduct is to change in this life now to also reflect that eternal state. We are called to follow Christ's example. And Peter has moved into that practical sense in what we've seen there. So how does our conduct change? What are, what are the instructions? And we've seen quite a bit already in our series in 1 Peter. And so just by way of recap, first, we remember, as we read in verses 3 to 5 of chapter 1, we remember our great salvation. Remember your great salvation. What flows from that then? Before God, we are to be holy even as God is holy. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So before God, we are to be holy. We saw that. Before the world, we are to live an honorable life. One filled with good deeds. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, strangers, foreigners in this land, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we are to live an honorable life filled with good deeds. As a citizen, in verse 13, 
chapter 2. As a citizen, we are submit to submit to civil authorities. Be subject, verse 13, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Living as people, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. We are to be subject and submit to the emperor, to civil authorities. But as we saw in that sermon, submission, subjection is not a blind obedience. That, that text that we just read is filled with instruction to help us understand what that looks like. But nevertheless, we are called to submit to civil authorities. As a servant, verses, uh, chapter two, verse, 18 to 25, we are to do good, even if it means to patiently suffer the mistreatment of others, specifically our masters, our employers. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. As we'll see in a minute, in our text, as wives, to submit to the leadership of their husbands. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. As husbands, our conduct is to consider the needs of our wives. Peter says in verse 7 of chapter 3, Likewise, husbands, live with your own, or live with your wives in an understanding way, and he instructs the men, the husbands, to show honor to their wife. And finally, we see submissive conduct in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Submissive conduct in the church. How do we are to conduct ourselves? Finally, chapter 8 of verse, or verse 8, sorry, of chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So from that brief outline, we see that our witness in this world is characterized by the basic, by this basic concept, the concept of submission. And as we have seen already, Peter continues this thought into our passage this morning when he addresses marriage relationships. When he begins in verse 1 of chapter 3 by saying, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, we know that this submission does not equate to blind obedience, but rather we are to submit to governing order, to social structure, to social patterns and relationships that God has designed and as He has designed that to be. Ultimately, we know we are to submit to God first. And so our submission in all other areas of life is directed by our submission to God and His Word. It is informed by God's Word. And as we saw during our time in these previous passages, regarding instructions on submission, we are to submit only insofar as we are submitting to God's Word 
and to His order. We never submit to institutions, masters, or spouses when doing so would require disobedience to God. And so this morning, as we move into our text, we want to look at, as you see in your outlines, two sets of instructions that Peter gives the church regarding submission in marriage relationships. Two sets of instructions. And number one is instructions to the wives. Instructions to the wives, and that's the first six verses. And the second point we'll look at is instructions to husbands, and that's in verse 7. So instructions to wives. Let's begin by reading chapter 3, verse 1 and on. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter's instruction here for wives to be subject to their husbands, as we know, is not always a popular statement in today's society. And it wouldn't have been one necessarily for everyone at that time either. Nevertheless, it is what he instructs. And so we must consider the intent of his instruction carefully. In fact, many may be tempted to note an imbalance in the passage, recognizing that we have first six verses addressed to wives, and then a follow-up of one verse addressed to husbands. In reality... The fact that Peter addresses women directly can be seen as a sign of honor bestowed upon women. Because in that culture, women were seen as inferior to men and not normally addressed independently of their fathers or husbands in writing. That was an interesting thought in reading the commentaries on this text. Consider yourself in this culture where women were not addressed directly. They were addressed through their husbands, or if not married, through their fathers. And so for Peter to address the wives directly, it would have been a sign of honor to them. You see, they were living at that time under a law, and I'll see if I can pronounce this correctly. My Latin isn't the strongest, I'm sure. But the law was called patria potestas. And in Latin it meant the power of a father. And so a little bit of description here. In Roman family law, power that the male head of a family exercised over his children and his more remote descendants in the male line, whatever their age, as well as over those brought into the family by adoption. This power meant originally not only that he had control over the persons of his children, amounting even to the right, and listen to this, the father had the right to inflict capital punishment. 
if he saw fit, it was his legal right to take the life or request the lives be taken of his children. That's the culture, the law in the Greco-Roman world at that time that they lived under. But he also alone had the rights in private law. Thus, any acquisitions of a child became the property of the father. The father might allow a child, as he might a slave, certain property to treat as his own, but in the eyes of the law, it continued to belong to the father. Patria potestas ceased normally only with the death of the father, but the father might voluntarily free the child by emancipation. And a daughter ceased to be under the father's potestas, potestas if, and this is the part that applies to, to our context here, if upon her marriage she came under the husband's manus. A corresponding power of husband over wife. In Roman law, autocratic power of the husband over the wife corresponding to this other law, the, the power of the father, over his children. A daughter ceased to be under her father's rule, and she came under the manus of her husband. So if we consider that, wives sitting in the church at that time, listening to this letter to be addressed directly, they would have been used to being under this strict rule of their father first, and then transferred under the madness of their husbands, who then ruled over her and literally held her life in his hands. If she displeased him, he could do as he pleased. So you see, the fact that Peter here addresses wives directly, it does bestow a respect and honor on them that would not have been normal during that time and should be viewed as a recognition of their equal standing and value to men in the eyes of God. So therefore, the church should recognize this as such as well and treat them in like manner. Society viewed women as mere servants who were to stay home and obey their husbands. And reading through commentaries and, and history, a lot of it would probably not be appropriate to, to share over the pulpit in a setting like this. It was a, a hard life. It was a devaluing life for a lot of women in the Greco-Roman world and culture. So again we see the honor that Peter is addressing them. He is not saying, Mike, tell your wife to do this. He is addressing the the woman directly, bestowing that honor on her as an equal in God's eyes, as an equal human being created in the image of God. And so, though he's telling them and starting with wives, be subject to your husbands, it wasn't an insult, it was an honor bestowed on them. But then we must consider, and MacArthur notes in his commentary, if a woman decided to obey the gospel, keeping in mind as Peter addresses here, be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word. So we see here the context though this isn't the exclusive context, but it includes wives who have believed the gospel, who have turned to Christ when their husbands have not. Again, not a norm for their culture. 
So he says, if a woman decided to obey the gospel, that decision to change religions on her own could result in severe abuse from her unsaved husband. And when such conversion did occur, a wife needed to know how to respond to her husband so that she might win him to the gospel. Her essential duty was to be submissive, as in the case of civil and workplace relations. So when we see what Peter's addressing here, and the culture into which he's addressing it, he is addressing wives to act a certain way to their husbands for the purpose of winning them to the gospel, of being an example. The normal cultural application would have seen wife and children follow the husband and the father in his religion. The man chose the religion that his family followed and the wife and the children and his servants and his slaves had no choice. This was their faith then as well. And as Christians, we understand that our faith, our, our children are, are not, do not enter into heaven. They're not grandfathered into heaven because of my faith. Each one, when we come to faith, we are brothers and sisters with one another, with one Father, God the Father, and we are married to Christ as His bride, and we become the body of Christ in that way. On the basis of our personal faith and repentance and turning and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. But again, in that culture, the Father chose the religion, the family followed. They had no choice. And so when a wife would turn to Christ, not only is she facing the persecution of an unsaved world, she has stepped outside in this sense and disregarded, dishonored her husband in many ways according to their law, according to their culture. Daniel Doriani in his commentary emphasizes uh, this text in his way, both Peter and Paul understood the problem for the wife who converts to Christianity when her husband does not. Neither said that a lack of faith is the basis for divorce, and Paul stressed that marriage is permanent and the bonds hold unless the believing husband or wife abandons the marriage. First Corinthians, let's, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for a minute here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Starting in verse 10. Here Paul writes, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. 
In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? As Peter focused on wives here in his text, since they implicitly challenged the cultural norms by adopting a faith that kept them from joining their husband's religious practices. But they were not to leave their spouse because of this. In fact, Paul encouraged them to stay with their spouse lest the unbelieving spouse chose to leave. So that Christian women are spiritually equal to men in Christ is clear again in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 to 28. We read, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. So we do not question that women are spiritually equal to men. And Peter is not questioning that. That is clear. Women are equal to men. In the eyes of God. Spiritually, there is no difference. They are, we are both made in the image of God. But God has ordained women to have certain obligations to their husbands. And as we will see later, husbands have obligations that God has given for their wives, towards their wives. So though they are equal, they are separate roles. Though their value is the same, they have separate, different obligations in this relationship. And so as we read in verse 1 of chapter 3, it starts with likewise. So in verse 1, likewise refers to the discussion that Peter is having regarding submission in the previous chapter. Verse 13 of chapter 2, we saw, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And in verse 18 of chapter 2, servants, be subject to your masters. And then Peter's continuing in our text here this morning in verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So as we went through those texts, we saw a submissive pattern, a submissive character that Peter was putting in there, but at the same time, he was giving guidelines, boundaries, he was giving direction as to what this looks like. And likewise, in the same manner, wives, be subject to your own husbands. But it has a purpose. There's multiple conditions in this text, so that there's a purpose to it, and it isn't just be as their culture saw it, because you are of lesser value or anything like that, the purpose is so that even if some do not obey the Word, the Word here being the Gospel of the good news, salvation, if they're unsaved, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they receive your respectful and pure conduct. And so while the command has a purpose, the winning of an unbelieving husband's, It is important to note it has no restrictions. It is not isolated only to those cases, because as we saw in the text, be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey, there will be others that do. So it has a purpose, but it is not restricted by that. Peter is commanding all wives to be subject to your own husbands as well. So consider that. Be subject to your own husbands, not to men in general, not to others' husbands, but they are to be subject to their own husbands. Therefore, all wives are to submit 
And some have the distinct purpose and goal of winning an unbelieving husband. And again, it is important to note, as Doriani comments, the idea of submission did not have the negative connotation that it has today. Submission does entail the concept that authorities give orders that subordinates follow. But submit is milder than obey for two reasons. And he gives us, goes on, gives us two reasons. First, a wife who submits to her husband's guidance may still decide how to follow his direction. And second, a believer's submission to human authorities is always qualified, never blind. If a husband commands his wife to do evil, she is to heed the Lord, not the man. So like the man, her, her first Lord, her first master is God, is the Lord Jesus Christ who, who saved her. That is the focus. The unbelieving husband in our text as we saw, does not obey the Word. The Word here being the Gospel. It is the Word that he rejects. He is unsaved. He is unregenerate. He does not obey the Gospel. They have rejected the good news and remain in their unregenerate unregenerate state. Sorry. Yet, if his Christian wife continues to submit to him, she may very well be the means by which God chooses to bring about the salvation of the husband. Peter says, without a word, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So how then could God use the wife as the means by which to bring about the salvation of the husband without a word, but by the conduct of the wife? The word, as we saw earlier, that they do not obey is the, is the gospel. That is the word that the husband rejects. The word referenced here in the latter part of the passage is not the gospel, but it is the words of the wife. Consider again, as we examined earlier, the culture that Peter is writing to. If being set free in Christ results in wives opposing their husbands, arguing with them constantly, or leaving them because of the faith, it would not have painted a very gracious picture of the grace that the wife now professes that she, uh, that she possesses, right? So it is not to be a constant argument, be berating the husband and belittling. Remember, in that culture, to oppose the husband would have been a, a big slight an insult, an offense against the husband. And so Peter's urging the wives to continue in this relationship, to, to submit to their husband's desires in a respectful and with pure conduct. And so he's urging them on in that way. But if rather the wife continues to submit to her husband in this respectful and pure conduct, we can well imagine that her influence on him would be much stronger and likewise would have the same impact today. And so if we consider the means by which even we as believers, when we profess the faith we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we go into the world outside of the church, outside of the church gathering, we go into businesses, our workplaces, families, especially where there's unbelieving people, as we saw with being subject to the governing authorities, as we saw to be subject to our masters. Likewise, how we conduct ourselves 
is an example and a portrayal of the grace that we profess. And so likewise in this culture and in our culture and in all cultures, because it is a broad command as well, when the wife conducts herself with, with respectful and pure conduct by submitting to her husband, it is a beautiful picture. It is not a belittling. It is not a berating picture. And we will see later the responsibility of the husband. But it is a beautiful picture of the wife bestowing honor and respect to her husband. But we ask then, so what is this respectful and pure conduct? What is it then? And that leads us to our next point, uh, sub-point, adornment. Peter answers this in this portion of Scripture. In verse 3, Peter urges women to pursue the highest beauty. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Turn with me for a minute to First Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy, sorry, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Adorn yourself with good works. This text does not prohibit wives from braiding their hair, putting on jewelry, or wearing nice clothing. But the point is not to let these things take priority over the inner beauty of the heart. Much as in our culture today, one commentary notes, in the Greco-Roman culture, women were devoted to superficial adornment often wearing the best cosmetics, dyeing their hair outlandish colors, braiding it elaborately and wearing, especially on their heads, costly jewelry to crown their elegant clothing. Does that sound familiar? And today's billboards, magazines, posters, commercials. What is being sold? External. It's external beauty. And not that those things are sinful in and of themselves if done within modest levels. To take care of oneself, to look beautiful for your spouse, for those things, there's nothing wrong with that. And um, we can point to the Song of Solomon. The bride described in this beautiful, elegant way with the jewelry. So we know, and, and, and we see other examples in Scripture, that is not the point that Peter is making. Do not... Braid your hair, you have to wear certain styles or, or do this. That is not what he's saying. But what 
is the focus? What is the priority? So in that, that culture, women who were adorning themselves in such a way, they were showing that they were rebellious often against their husbands, against their fathers. And women, maybe as we would say, looser women in that culture, these styles is what they would use to to uh, yell out to the world around them to look at me, look at me. It was a disrespectful and shameful thing. So it is not that women today can't have braided hair, can't wear jewelry and those things, but what Peter is saying, don't let these things be your beauty. And likewise, in today's culture, a woman who is only focused on the outside and forgets the godly character of, of, of the heart to, to be kind, respectful. The beauty is superficial and it fades. But a beautiful woman is one who, who is so from the heart. And especially for the husband who knows his wife in such a way, knows that that is where the beauty comes from. And then that external beauty never fades. Right, husbands? But it keeps growing. And it's because it's magnified by the beauty, inner beauty of the person. And so none of these things, though they are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, the braiding of the hair, the jewelry, though they are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, none of them bring any value to the spirituality of the woman. And in pursuing such external adornment, women in that culture could have brought reproach to their husbands rather than honor. So Peter says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The inner adornment. How are, how are we adorning the, the heart, the inner person? Are we focusing as much time and we should be more as to who we are, the heart of who we are over and above the facade of our exterior. External beauty is not a sin, but it is temporal and it is fleeting and bears no eternal value to the heart of the person. How you look on the outside will not determine if you will be entering into heaven's gates or not. Therefore, the focus for wives, and husbands for that matter, should be the hidden person of the heart, or as we might say, the inner beauty, which Peter calls imperishable and defines as a gentle and quiet spirit. This is the beauty that should be first and foremost our focus, our priority. Gentle here, when Peter says a gentle and quiet spirit, gentle comes from a word referring to a humble and a meek attitude expressed in, excuse me, expressed in patient submissiveness. Quiet speaks of being still or tranquil. Such a character in the spirit of a believing wife is the true inner beauty that is precious in the sight of God and effective in making her not only valuable and attractive to her husband, 
but demonstrating the beauty and value of regeneration. As her heart is being transformed and she is being sanctified, the beauty of regeneration is what's coming out as well. The beauty of this salvation that God has given her. And this beauty, it is this beauty that is precious. Peter says, literally, it means costly. It is valuable before God. It is precious before God. A wife's submission is precious before God because it shows that she has placed her hope in God by obeying His Word, even if it could cost her. Peter then goes on to give a very practical example of what this adornment looks like. So we've seen here, this adornment, it's not specific, uh, as specific about do's and don'ts regarding braided hair and jewelry, but it is the idea, as we saw in Paul's text in Timothy, about modesty. And modesty can go both ways. And yes, in our culture, it is usually on the lesser side in which we have those concerns. But modesty can also be this elaborate dress, specifically just to draw the attention of the world around you, to look at me, look at me. And likewise, that is what Peter is addressing here. Don't make it be your external adornment. Let your beauty be your internal adornment. And then like we said, Peter goes on to give us this practical example of what this looks like in verses 5 and 6 of our text. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands. And so he ties this together, this modesty, this picture of adornment, back to his initial imperative where wives are to be subject to their husbands. For this is how holy women used to adorn themselves. This was their adornment. They submitted to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you will note, it is not capital L, Lord. It is not Lord as in God or Jesus or a deity, but Lord as in Master. Her head, her leader. He had authority. And then Peter says, and you, to the wives, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So what are we seeing here? Regarding this passage, Juan Sanchez states, in other words, if you do good, in this case, if you submit to your husband as Sarah did, you too show that you have placed your hope in God and fear Him above all. And because you fear God above all, you have no reason to so fear anything else in life. Those things that are naturally frightening, that your conduct is directed by a desire to change or escape them. If our fear is in God first and foremost, then our conduct will not be influenced to change because of the things that we fear on this earth. It may even be a very relevant idea and concept for us here and now. 
If our fear of God is foremost in our minds than the things of this earth that we fear, though they are real and though they make us often ponder and hesitate and we struggle through them, they do not affect our conduct. We still continue on by being obedient and stepping forth and being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter is telling the wives to do. If you place your hope in God and if you fear Him, then anything else that you fear or anything else that is frightening, sorry, you don't have to fear because your hope is in God. And as we saw in our introduction, that is what we put our focus on. And that is what he's calling wives to. The quote goes on, There may come a time when submission to your husband is hard. God knows we're not perfect men. We make mistakes. We respond wrongfully. I'm getting some... No. (laughs) So to submit may be hard. Because you are submitting to an imperfect man. And in the case where Peter's writing often, and in our cases as well, often to an unbelieving spouse. There may come a time when submission to God has to take precedence over submission to your husband. And that is hard too. When such times come, live as a daughter of Sarah because you are a child of God. Place your hope in Him, knowing that you may face shame, ridicule, or worse, but knowing also that what you are doing is precious to God and that in the end you will be vindicated by God. If we consider again the audience that Peter is writing to, Paul tells us in Galatians that all who are of faith are children of Abraham. So as a believer, it's a very common idea to consider your faith to, to make you a child of Abraham. All those who are of faith. So Abraham is the father of faith. He gave us the example, Genesis 15, I believe it is. God told them to count the stars, grains of sand, and so will be your children, your descendants. And Abraham, what? Believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Before the law, before all of that, faith. Abraham, the father of faith in that way. And so we are children of Abraham. And so now to the wives, Sarah, who is Sarah? Abraham's wife. And so for a wife to be considered a daughter of Sarah really is just again that emphasis as well on being a child of God and having that value, but yet in that way to follow her example. And Sarah submitted to Abraham. And in such a way, submitting to an unbelieving husband could cause great fear to the wife. But rather than giving in to those fears, those who are faithful to submit to their own husbands, as per God's word, can be used by God then as an instrument in the salvation of their husbands. What a beautiful picture that is. What a beautiful picture it is. That God would use our feeble, weak attempts at being humble, at being submissive, at being obedient. And He uses those to bring validity to the gospel message. 
We've probably all heard that term, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. I don't want to hear any amens. (laughs) It is necessary to use words to preach the gospel because the gospel literally means good news. And to proclaim that good news, yes, you must use words to proclaim it. But something that we should consider, though it is necessary to use words, we ought to live in such a way that the message that we proclaim verbally is verified. If we speak of grace and forgiveness and love and care and respect and honor, we should then live in such a way that proves that we believe what we're preaching. And that is what I believe Peter is saying here when the wives are to submit to their husbands in such a way in order to win some of them. It is not that their faith is found in the actions of their wife. But if the wife leaves out from other, not, 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 doesn't leave from under his headship in that way, but, but separates herself from the faith and religion of the husband and recognizes her own value and worth in the sight of God and recognizes that she is free in Christ. And if as a result, it results in her turning against her husband, it results in her speaking against him, dishonoring him, shaming him we can very well see and understand that that would not work in or help in bringing the husband to an appreciation of this faith and this gospel message that the wife now proclaims. And so because of that, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So we see how important, and again, as we emphasize in the introduction, how important our conduct as Christians is. And what a privilege that God uses us as instruments in the salvation of others. And that takes us to our last point. Number two, instructions to husbands. Verse 7. The first subpoint you'll see on the back of your outline with understanding. So the instructions to husbands. Verse 7. Likewise, see? Peter's starting this exact same way as he did for the wife. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now Peter also gives instruction to the husbands, and he begins again, likewise, husbands. There's a submission on the part of husbands as well. But as MacArthur notes, husbands don't submit to the authority of the wife, They don't submit to the leadership of the wife, to the headship of the wife, but he says they do submit to the needs of the wife. We saw earlier that in the Greco-Roman culture, husbands controlled their wives and even held the life of their wife and children in their hands. So now, as a Christian husband, he should live with her in an understanding way, which speaks of being sensitive and considerate of the wife's deepest needs, both physically and emotionally. 
The word translated live here means dwelling together and refers to living with someone in intimacy and cherishing them as Christ loved the church. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 28. Husbands, love your wives. You want to talk about setting the bar high? You want to talk about setting a standard, an intimidating standard? Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way. Husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. That is a high standard placed on husbands. But it is something that we are instructed to do, husbands, by God. This is the example, the picture that He gives us as Christ loved the church. In such a way we are to live with our wives, sacrificially cherishing them, being intimate with them, caring for them. So when Peter says in an understanding way, understanding really interprets two Greek words that simply translated would be according to knowledge. Live with your wife according to knowledge. But as New Testament scholar Peter Davids explains, this the knowledge we're to have of our wives is not an analytical knowledge or religious insight. It is not just data. It is not just facts. It is not just she has blonde hair, she stands this tall, her eyes are this color, she loves this kind of clothing. That's not what we are being told. That's not what this understanding, this knowledge is. But personal insight. A personal insight that leads to loving and considerate care, whether intimately or in other activities of marriage. As men, maybe you have as well, probably many have, somewhat jokingly and maybe even carelessly, uttered the excuse that, I don't understand women. I can't understand women. You know, we joke about the book, right? Writing a joke, how to understand women, and there's one blank page in it. Because <laughs> we have no answers. But here's the thing. Men, husbands, you're not called to understand women. You are called to understand your wife. To know her needs. To know her desires. To know what she needs from you. That is what you are called to do. So though we may joke about understanding women, never forget you are called to understand your wife. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with them in an understanding way. You are called to understand your own wife so that you may submit to her needs. That you may serve her in that way. To take care of her needs. 
as your spouse, and then you are able to then show her the honor bestowed upon her. Which leads us then to our next point. Subpoint here. Showing honor. Peter continues in verse 7, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Husbands, understand your wives so that you may show honor. Understand them so that you may show honor to her as the weaker vessel. This does not mean that women are spiritually inferior to men, but commentators agree this means that generally women are physically weaker than men. Therefore, men are to be the sacrificial providers, protectors, and leaders in their homes, whether or not their wives are believers. Whether or not a husband is to be this leader in the home showing honor to her as the weaker vessel. Lead, protect, guide, provide as a a sacrificial leader. Again, seeing the sacrifice Christ gave and how He loved the church, we too then serve our wives in that way and submit to her needs by providing, by protecting, by leading. And in this way, a husband honors his wife by valuing her and showing her love, care, respect, protection, and providing provision for her needs, both physically and emotionally. While wives are called to submit to their husbands, regardless of how deserving they are, husbands ought to honor their wives in such a way that, listen to this, honor your wife, love your wife, care for her in such a way that her submission becomes a joy for her. As we submit to Christ Through joy, through love, we are excited to submit to Him in such a way because of the great love that He has shown us by giving Himself for us. Husbands, lead your wives. Care for her in such a way that submission becomes a joy. Not a duty, a joy. And in such a way, Peter says, so that, and he ends this verse and then to our last point here, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, honor your wives. Live with them in understanding and honor them in such a way that your prayers may not be hindered. We see that Peter gives us condition here. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing her honor and then the conditions so that your prayers may not be hindered. Remember, this whole address has had a focus on Christian conduct in an unbelieving world. As citizens, as servants, and now as wives and husbands. Though the instructions Peter has given to both have been applicable to all wives and husbands, let's not lose the focus on the, let's, let's not lose focus on the fact that he is keeping in view also here of winning or the view of winning unbelieving spouses by the validity of the word, the gospel, by the conduct of the person professing to be a believer. The conduct and care of the believing spouse. So we ask this question. What could hinder the prayers of a believing husband praying for the salvation of his unbelieving wife more than if he mistreated her and continued to rule over her as an uncaring, unloving tyrant? 
Do we think for one minute that if we mistreat our wives that God is pleased with us and He is hearing our prayers? That He is considering our prayers when we can't even treat our wives gently and caringly? But overall, again, as we also noted, nothing limits verse 7, nothing limits Peter's application to only the prayers of a believing husband for an unbelieving wife. So there, we look at the broader application and see that if a husband neglects the needs of his wife, if he does not lovingly care for her in an understanding way and honor her, then God may not answer his prayers. That's a heavy condition there. And how husbands ought to treat their wives. Again, if we think back, as we saw in the culture, and how it must have felt for the wives, consider also the husbands now in that culture, who would have often been raised and trained to be hostile towards their wives any time one of their needs was not met as they saw fit. Any time the dinner wasn't cooked perfectly or the whatever it might be, he could throw her out. He could have her killed. And now Peter is telling them, live with them in an understanding way, showing her honor so that your prayers are not hindered. It is a heavy standard set. But it is what the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to tell us. So let us consider that. Same way as wives consider submission and respect to their husbands, husbands, honor your wives. Strive to understand them so that their submission to you becomes a joy in their life so that your prayers may not be hindered. We see the emphasis that Peter is putting on marriage relationships. And rightfully so, as the Scriptures use the picture of marriage to illustrate the believer's union with Christ. Why such a heavy standard? Why such a a, a distinct picture when it comes to marriages? Because it might be the best illustration that Scripture gives us. And how we exemplify our Christian relationship with Christ is how we treat and love our spouses. So in conclusion, we've seen in the passages read this morning that marriages, relationships are of high importance to God and thus we should strive to live with one another in those relationships as God has commanded us. Wives, submitting to your husbands, God-given authority. Husbands, Submitting to your wife's needs and meeting her needs as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So for both wives and husbands, how we treat our spouses does reflect to the world what we think of the gospel. Consider that with me. How we treat our spouse does reflect what we think of the gospel. Responding to each other in submissive pattern that God has ordained pleases God and provides a testimony to the unbelieving spouse of God's grace, of God's care, of God's love and faithfulness. And if both husband and wife are believers, then these characteristics provide testimony to the unbelieving world around us of the sacrificial love, 
care, and faithfulness that Christ has shown us. And as a result, we too, we too then willingly submit to His authority and His rule over our lives. And in such a way, brothers and sisters, it is a powerful way that we can bring validity to the gospel message, to this message of grace, this message of love that we proclaim to the world around us in how we treat each other. And we'll see in our next text, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. How we treat each other is of utmost importance to God. And husbands and wives, how we treat each other in this marriage relationship and strive to be obedient to the pattern that He has set for us, that is a testimony to the world around us. And though the world may, especially for women, mock and scorn and frown at the idea of submission, By doing so joyfully, wives, you are also telling the world that Jesus Christ is worth it. It is worth obeying Him for this inheritance, this gift, this gospel that He has given us. And so as we saw in our opening, let us always, in all these spheres of society, in all these uh, pressures of culture, let us always, first and foremost, place our sight, look over and above, place our sight on that inheritance which is eternal, that is guarded by God, and it cannot be changed. Focus on that, and as we come together and strive as a church body to be obedient in these instructions that Peter then gives us how to live in this world, knowing, knowing and trusting that God is using that to build His kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this word that You have given us. I pray, God, that that which has been preached today, that that which is true, that You would take that and that You would make it real to each one of us in our own hearts, in our own minds, as we strive to love our wives in such a way that her submission becomes a joy for her. Help us, Lord, to love our spouses Help, help me, help the men, the husbands in the church to love their wives in the ma- manner that you loved the church and gave yourself for her. Help us, Lord, to stand together, to be strong and courageous as we face the persecutions of the culture around us, the world around us, the societies around us, and help us to exemplify these patterns that you have given us in your word and how we as Christians are to conduct ourselves. Give us the grace, the understanding, the wisdom, and the strength, Lord, to do so. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.